Good morning. So as we get started this morning, I have a question for you. Um, what comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, his or her or their finest hour? You don't have to answer that out loud, just think about it. Maybe you think of a description of somebody's immoral behavior. A person does something wrong and it may be said, that wasn't his finest hour. Or maybe you go the more sarcastic route and you think of a description of someone's uh, ignorance. So a person does or says something really dumb and it could be said of him, well, that wasn't his finest hour. Or maybe you think of a description of someone's commendable or praiseworthy or exemplary behavior. Maybe that's where most of our minds go. That's similar to how Winston Churchill used the phrase. Um, some of you may remember that. Uh, as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, in June of 1940, in the midst of World War II, he delivered a speech to the House of Commons and then later to the nation. And in that he said, the whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will stand and say, this was their finest hour. So this morning we're continuing our series in Genesis and we're focusing on chapter 48, which describes Jacob's blessing of uh, Joseph through his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, as I was preparing this week, I was struck by a, a commentator, uh, his name's Bruce Waltke. I was struck by his summary of this situation. He says that this is, quote, Jacob's finest hour. On his deathbed, a scene extending from 4728 to 4932, Jacob has assumed total and dynamic leadership of the family. Even Joseph bows down to him. So Waltke is obviously using the phrase finest hour in that positive sense we talked about. He's describing exemplary behavior on Jacob's part from Genesis 47, 28 through chapter 49, verse 32. Now, we're not going to cover chapter 49 this morning, but I do think that we can focus on Genesis 48 and still see it as Jacob's finest hour for at least three reasons. One, in faith, Jacob is remembering God's promise. Two, he is in faith, passing on the promise. And then three, he is in faith, looking toward Canaan, the land of promise. We'll consider each of those uh, as we work through the chapter. And as we do so, I hope that we'll not just see how this is Jacob's finest hour, but I hope that we'll see how his faith can encourage us and I hope that we will see uh, Jesus in the process because the hero of this story ultimately, as we know, is not Jacob, but Christ. So we can learn from Jacob and we should learn from him 
But ultimately, let's be sure that we fix our eyes on Jesus, and so I hope that we can do that. So let's go ahead and dive into the chapter, and let's look at that first point, remembering God's promise. So this is chapter 48 of Genesis, verses 1 to 7. Now, before we dive into the text, let's remind ourselves of where we are in Genesis. So at this point, God's people, including Jacob and his 12 sons and their families, they're living in the land of Egypt. And the time of Jacob's death, we've learned, is drawing near. So in Genesis 47, 29 to 31, Jacob calls his son Joseph to him. And he asks Joseph to swear to take his body out of Egypt and bury him with his fathers. That's, that is in the land of Canaan. And Joseph agrees to do it. And so the question, and, and Pastor Chris touched on this last week, the question is, why does Jacob want that? Why does he want that so badly? Why not be content to just be buried in Egypt? Well, there are perhaps a few places in Genesis where we could uh, look to answer that question, but I think that we see it clearly here in these first several verses of Genesis 48. So in verses 1 to 2, sometime after Jacob asks Joseph to bury him in Canaan, word gets to Joseph that Jacob is sick. So Joseph, with his two sons, and pay attention to the word order here. It's going to be important later. So with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, he goes to Jacob. Jacob's told that Joseph came to him. And the text says, quote, that Israel, that's, that's Jacob, that's the name that God gave to him, that Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And then in verses 3 and 4, Jacob speaks to Joseph and he tells him about the promise that God made to him at a place called Luz, which Jacob renamed Bethel. He says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Now, that's an amazing promise, right? It includes two things, offspring and the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. Now, if you've been with us as we've worked through Genesis or if you've studied Genesis before, you may remember that Jacob isn't the first person to receive this promise from God. It's actually Abraham. So starting in Genesis 12 and in the chapters that follow, God promises Abraham, that's Jacob's grandfather, that he will give him a multitude of offspring and the land of Canaan. And then later in Genesis 26, God extends those promises to Isaac. Isaac is Abraham's son and Jacob's dad. And then, as Jacob is recalling here in chapter 48, God passes those promises on to him. And he did that at Luz, something that happened actually on two different occasions in Genesis 28 and in Genesis 35. And the point is, Jacob hasn't forgotten this. Nearing the end of his life here, the promises that God made to him in the past are informing and laying the groundwork for his final actions and his final requests. So take his burial, for example. Why doesn't Jacob want to be buried in Egypt? Things are going well in Egypt. They're going so well, in fact, that Genesis 47, 27, it says, 
Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Fruitful and multiplied. That's the language of God's command in Genesis 1.28, and it's, it's happening here. And also here, the, the language of the blessing that Jacob receives that he recalls in verse 4, that shows up too. So it seems like Egypt could be a great place to settle down. They're doing well. But here's the problem. God didn't promise Egypt to Jacob. He promised him Canaan. Sure, God is blessing Jacob and his family in Egypt, but Jacob knows that his home is not there. One commentator puts it this way. He says, Moses will forsake Egypt alive. Jacob will forsake Egypt dead. Egypt is to Jacob and his family what the ark was to Noah, a temporary shelter from the disaster on the outside. Remember, they they went to Egypt because of famine. Continuing the quote, he says, Even if represented only by his decayed remains, he wants to be a part of that redemptive act of God. So Jacob, who was once a deceptive trickster, uh, known or prone to taking matters into his own hands, displays commendable faith right here, nearing the end of his life. He is... He is trusting the Lord, and he is trusting in the Lord's promise that he made to him. But that said, why exactly does he bring up God's blessing of him at Luz here in this chapter? After all, the promise that God made to him may help explain why he asked Joseph to swear to bury him in Canaan, but that was chapter 48. His mention of the promise in this chapter is after that occurred. So why does he bring it up here? Well, one possibility is that he wants to remind Joseph where the family's future lies. Joseph is in a high position of power in Egypt. In Genesis 41:40, Pharaoh tells him, you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So Joseph enjoys power in Egypt. But not only that, the people of Israel, Joseph's family, they are now in Egypt, and they're living bountifully in the land of Goshen. So again, things are going well. So maybe Joseph needed to hear this word from Jacob, or maybe Jacob wanted to give it to him. So one commentator, he says it like this, Jacob's repetition of this particular encounter with God may be a gentle reminder to Joseph that Egypt is a temporary abode. It is in Canaan, and only in Canaan, that the promises of God can be realized. What God has graciously done for his people in Egypt is but a foretaste of what he will do for them in Canaan. Now, Another possible reason that Jacob could mention this, could mention God's blessing, is because he's intending to pass on that blessing himself. That seems to be the case based on how the rest of the chapter goes. Remember that God's blessing didn't stop with Jacob. The blessing included offspring. And as the one who received the blessing of God, the blessing from God, 
Jacob is now in a position where he can bless the next generation. And that's exactly what he's going to do. Now, later in chapter 49, Jacob is going to bless his 11 other sons. But here in chapter 48, he begins specifically by um, invoking the blessing typically reserved for the firstborn son. It's called the birthright, which includes a double portion of the family inheritance. That would have gone to Reuben. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn son, but Reuben forfeited his right to the birthright because he slept with Jacob's concubine after Jacob's wife Rachel died. So instead, the blessing, like the birthright, the right of the firstborn, is going to go to Joseph. Notice how this happens. So that brings us back to the text. In verse 5, Jacob tells Joseph that his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are his. Now, I mentioned the word order earlier. Notice the word order now. Again, this will be important later. But in verse 5, it's Ephraim and Manasseh. In verse 1, it's Manasseh and Ephraim. It's flipped. Um, Keep that in mind. So Jacob here tells Joseph that Ephraim and Manasseh are his. And he specifies that they are his just as Reuben and Simeon his first and second-born sons are his. And then in verse 6, he makes it clear that this only applies to Ephraim and Manasseh. Any kids born to Joseph after them would be Joseph's, and they would be called by the name of Ephraim and Manasseh, who now represent Joseph in their inheritance. So do you see how, jo- how Jacob receives a, uh, or I'm sorry, how Joseph receives a double portion here? This is the giving of the birthright. Jacob adopts Joseph's two sons, and they represent him. So now, instead of a single portion of the inheritance, he gets double. This plays itself out later when the nation of Israel divides the land of Canaan. So God fulfills his promise and takes them to the land, and when they're dividing it out, Ephraim and Manasseh represent Joseph, and they each get one portion of the land, And the tribes of Jacob's other sons, with the exception of Levi, they also receive a portion of the land. So each tribe gets a single portion, but because Joseph is represented by two tribes, he gets double. The birthright that traditionally would have gone to Reuben is his. 1 Chronicles 5, 1-2 states this clearly. It says, The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel... For he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Now, in verse 7 of chapter 48, Jacob mentions Rachel, and it's not entirely clear why he mentions her, why he mentions her death. Um, It could be that uh, as he's remembering God's blessing of him at Bethel, which occurs in Genesis 35, 10 to 12, that that causes him to remember the sorrow of losing his wife afterward in Genesis 35, 16 to 20. Given that Joseph is the son of Jacob and Rachel, it could also be the case that Jacob is recalling Rachel's death as he's adopting Joseph's two boys. 
So Rachel had died years earlier, and it's possible that she could have had more children if she had lived longer. Perhaps adopting Manasseh and Ephraim means, in a way, two more children for Rachel, Jacob's um, beloved wife. But at any rate, let's step back here and, and, and realize what's happening. So in these verses, Jacob's actions, so his request to be buried in Canaan in chapter 47, and his adopting of Ephraim and Manasseh in chapter 48, they are rooted in his faithful remembrance of God's promise to him. God promised Canaan to Jacob and his offspring. Jacob takes God at his word, and Jacob acts on what he knows to be true, namely that God's promises are sure. Now, the nation of Israel needed to be reminded of that. Remember that they may be hearing the story as they're entering the promised land many, many years later, as they are exiting Egypt and going into Canaan. How encouraging would it have been to them as they are entering the land of promise to hear again this reminder from Jacob of the promise that God made to him? How encouraging that might that be to remember that, to be reminded of that? And how encouraging might it be to hear of Jacob's uh, example of faithful living in light of the promise? So yes, uh, these final chapters here that record the end of Jacob's life uh, are showing us that this is his finest hour. He is a, a model of faith here in the way that he's acting. He is remembering God's promise and he's, and he's trusting in it. And as God's people, Israel, many years later, might be coming into the promised land, they are going to be encouraged by this too. But what about for us? How can this help us? What does this have to do with us? Well, the good news of the gospel is that God's promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the far-off descendant of this family of faith. So God promised to give these men offspring. He promised to bless the families of the earth in them. And he promised to give their offspring the land of Canaan. And they trusted him. But what's wonderful is that because of what Jesus accomplished through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death on the cross, and through his triumphant resurrection, those promises that were made long ago are being realized. They are coming to full fruition. The offspring that God promised Abraham, it's not limited to Abraham's physical descendants. The promise refers to everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So that means that when God promises Abraham that he would have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky, that if you're trusting Jesus today, you are included in that number. It's so encouraging, I think, to remember that. And, and in addition to offspring, the land, the land that God promised, 
is the new heavens and the new earth, which we, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, don't possess now, but wait for in faith. So one, one writer says this, reflecting on, on these things. He says, Just as Jacob blessed his grandsons and elevated them to the place of sons so as to ensure their involvement in the promise, Christ has made us heirs of that very same promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise and the one who gives us our status before the Father in heaven. So as we look to Genesis 48, and as we see here in these first several verses, Jacob remembering God's promises to him, I think that we should likewise be encouraged. We are heirs of that promise. And if you are trusting Jesus, God has saved you. He has made you righteous in him. And you have the assurance that you are one of Abraham's offspring. We must remember that in faith. We must remember our part in the story and recall what Jesus has done for us. That is going to steady us in every storm that comes our way, even when it's our own death, as it is in this passage for Jacob. And as we said, that day is approaching for Jacob. His death is coming. But before it arrives, he's not only remembering God's promise, but he's also, and this is our second point, he is passing on the blessing. And this is verses 8 to 20. So in, in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 48, Jacob recounts the promise of God given to his grandfather Abraham, then to his father Isaac, and then to him. And he prepares to bless his son Joseph by adopting his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And now here in these verses, he's going to formally adopt and bless the boys. So verse 8 says, when, jo or when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Now, Joseph could have asked that because this, this may be a, um, a, a formal procedure where he's asking Joseph to, to um, name the boys as they are being like, adopted and blessed. But he could simply be asking Joseph, like, who are these? Because he can't see very well. Like verse 10 actually says that his eyes are dim with age. Joseph responds in verse 9, he says, the, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. The boys were indeed uh, born to Joseph in Egypt before the famine hit. And given that Jacob lived in Egypt for 17 years, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, they're probably at least 20 years old at this point. And Jacob asked Joseph, he asked, the, he asked him to bring the boys to him. And then he kisses and embraces them. Don't let that pass you by. When, when we read scripture, sometimes it can be easy to just simply read words or facts on a page. But when we read scripture, it's important that as best we can, we work to enter into the story. And here in Genesis 48, we see a man nearing death, Jacob. He's been given wonderful promises of God that apply not just to him, but to his family, to his descendants. And now he is in bed with his beloved son, Joseph, embracing his two grandsons. It's a really sweet, a sweet moment for this family. 
And it's no wonder that he says in verse 11, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. God has been so kind to Jacob. He once thought that Joseph was dead. He didn't know that his other sons, with the exception of Reuben, who didn't seem to be there at the time, and Benjamin, who wasn't born yet, he didn't know that his other sons sold Joseph to Midianite traders who later sold him to Potiphar in Egypt. Jacob wasn't aware of that. Jacob thought that Joseph had been killed. It wasn't until years later that he found out that Joseph was alive. And now he's not only seeing Joseph, but he's seeing Joseph's kids. Like imagine how thankful he must be and see how thankful he seems here. Seems delighted. Well, after this, uh, Joseph removes Ephraim and Manasseh from Jacob's knees and he bows before Jacob. Now, given what the text has said about Jacob's health and the fact that the boys are probably around 20 at this point, they probably weren't actually on his knees, but more likely the text means something like they were like in between his knees or by his knees. And, and it's possible that here as Joseph removes Ephraim and Manasseh, from Jacob, that that's concluding a formal adoption of the boys. Well, next, Joseph takes the boys and he places them purposefully before Jacob to be blessed. And notice how he does that. This is, this is important here. Ephraim, the secondborn, is on Joseph's right hand, so he's, he's toward Jacob's left. He's in Joseph's right which if Jacob is facing him, Jacob's left. And Manasseh is on Joseph's left hand, so toward Jacob's right. So Joseph has, has placed the boys, it seems, strategically. He's simply following the, the custom of the time here. He expects the greater blessing to go to his firstborn, to Manasseh. And so he arranges his sons to reflect that. He puts Manasseh on Jacob's right hand, the, the hand associated with blessing. But watch what Jacob does. In verse 14, um, it says, And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the hand of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So the boys are in front of Jacob, and instead of putting his hand straight out and with his right hand blessing the older Manasseh and with his left blessing the younger Ephraim, he does this. He crosses his hands over. And what it's symbolizing is the greater blessing is going to Ephraim, the secondborn, not, and, the, and it's not going to Manasseh, the firstborn. It's not the first time that the Lord has done this in Genesis, like the Lord is not a subject to the customs and traditions of the day. The Lord is sovereign and can do as he pleases. He chooses Jacob over Esau, even though Esau was born first. Here, he chooses Manasseh over, I'm sorry, he chooses Ephraim over Manasseh, even though Manasseh was born first. Then, verse 15, it says that, that Jacob blessed, and notice this, Joseph, 
So remember that he is blessing Joseph here. Joseph is receiving the birthright, and he is represented by two sons, double portion, Ephraim and Manasseh. And, and, and watch, what, watch what he says. Watch how he calls on the Lord here in these verses. So first he says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. So the God to whom he's praying is the God of his fathers. The God before whom Abraham and Isaac lived faithfully. And second he says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Just, it's, I think, um, a powerful moment for Jacob, especially if we remember like the course of his life. Jacob has lived a tumultuous life, to say the least. When he's younger, he's a, he's a deceptive trickster. He, he gets the, the birthright from Esau uh, in exchange for a bowl of stew. He tricks his father Isaac into blessing him. When Isaac really intended to bless Esau, he tricks his way into that. He lives many years with Laban, and, and in that case, he experiences what it's like to be deceived because Laban is in some ways an equal match to him. God calls him to return back to the land of Canaan, and in returning back to the land of Canaan, it means he's going to, ha- he's going to be reunited in a way with Esau. And remember how Esau felt about him the last time he heard? He had tricked Esau out of his blessing. Esau wanted to kill him. The question at that point is, is the Lord going to see him through? Like, is he going to die? And we know the Lord, the Lord rescues him. The Lord brings him out of that. And the Lord has been faithful to him all the way along. And here, nearing the end of his life, he's recognizing that in faith. He's recognizing how the Lord has been his shepherd. And just with Jacob's life in mind, just hear this. Hear, hear Psalm 23. And, and let's think about what... Um, truths like these would have meant to a man like Jacob. Now, this wouldn't have been written yet, but he nevertheless, I think, could resonate with the truth that's here. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. At the end of his life here, Jacob knows um, the Lord as shepherd. He knows that the Lord has been with him all along, guiding him, leading him, protecting him, and he recognizes that. And then third, notice what else he says as he's uh, delivering this blessing. He says, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Now, since Jacob is referring to, to God here, Um, In in these verses, it seems like the angel most likely is also a reference to God as well. 
So a couple of texts could be in view here. Texts like Genesis 31 may be in view. So as he's getting ready to leave Laban, his father-in-law, he says this in Genesis 31. It says, then the angel of God said to me in, a, in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So the angel of the Lord is speaking to him there. And then in verse 13, he hears, I am the God of Bethel. That can be in view. It's also possible that Genesis 32 could be in view. That's where he's preparing to meet his brother Esau. And the night before he meets Esau, he wrestles with God during the night and the Lord blesses him. It's a visible manifestation of the Lord. So, something to think about. Can you in any way identify with Jacob's description of how the Lord has been with him here in these verses? He hasn't always learned lessons the easy way. They've come the difficult way, which is the case for many of us. But here at the end of his life, he's looking back and he's seeing the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord has redeemed me from all evil. He knows God's been there all along. And he's recalling that as he's blessing these two boys, as he's blessing Joseph. Now, those aren't things that we have to wait till we're on our deathbed to recall. We can remember those if we're trusting Jesus now. We can look back and see what God has promised us, to see, see how God has delivered on his promises to us. If you're in Christ, remember, you're Abraham's offspring. You are a recipient, an heir of the promise. God has been good to you. And not only that, but God has been shepherding you all along. He hasn't left. He's been there. He's redeemed you. He's redeemed us from all evil. That may be something to think about this week as you meet with your community group. How have you seen the Lord at work in these ways in your life? But back to Genesis 48. So Jacob remembers the ways that the Lord has been faithful to him as he's blessing the boys. And he says, uh, finally, at the end of verse 16, and in them, the boys, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So he's passing on the promises that he received to the next generation. Now, watch what Joseph does. In verse 17, we learn that Joseph sees the, the positioning of Jacob's hands. He sees that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, and the text says that it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Now, that may not be Jacob um, trying to step in and thwart the plans of God. It could just be Jacob thinking, my father can't see well, and so I'm going to fix his hands. But at any rate, he tries to move Jacob's hands. And watch what, um, watch what he says in verse 18. Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father, verse, eight, verse 19 says, refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He, shall be, he also shall become a people, 
and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So this scene right here with, with the boys, it has many parallels with Isaac's blessing of Jacob back in Genesis 27. Isaac, too, had poor eyesight. He was in bad health. Isaac, too, sought to, ex- sought to extend a blessing as he's growing in age. But notice what's different. Back in Genesis 27, Isaac is going against the will of God and seeking to bless Esau, his favorite son, instead of Jacob. And Jacob, too, is sinning and trying to trick, which he successfully accomplishes, trick Isaac into blessing him instead. Now, with Genesis 48 in mind, things are way different for this man. In Jacob's case, there's no preferential treatment, it doesn't seem. There's no deceit. There's no trickery. He, out in the open, out in plain sight, is blessing the younger over the older. And even when he's corrected, he stays the course. He has learned that God is sovereign, that God is free to extend his grace to those whom he chooses. And it seems that here, uh, in this chapter, in this passage, he is um, recognizing that, following the path of God by faith. This is a, a man who has been very much changed since we met him in Gen- or since we saw him in Genesis 27. This is a man, Jacob, who Hebrews 11:21 says, "By faith." Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. This is Jacob's finest hour. Nearing the end of his life, he is clinging to the promise of God. He is clinging to the blessing. He's remembering it, remembering what God said in the past. That's informing how he's acting. And here he is faithfully passing that on to the next generation. And as Christians, remember, we are part of this promise too. We are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And what is wonderful is that we now get to play a part in urging others to get in on this. We're heirs, and we can encourage people to get in. We are the ambassadors of God, God making his appeal through us. We are heirs telling people of the promises available to them in the gospel. And so I think that we can look at Jacob's example, and granted, it's not a one-to-one with our situation today, but we can look at Jacob's example of faithfully passing on the blessing and learn something from that and see that God has been good to me. Jesus has saved me. I am an heir according to the promise because of Christ, and I want other people to get in on it too. So again, this week, I think as you meet with your community group, whether that's today or later, I think this is a good thing to discuss. Like, How can we as a church 
be faithfully living that out. Be faithfully seeking to call others to get in on the blessing, on the promises of God. And how can seeing Joseph's, Jacob's faithfulness here perhaps even motivate us along those lines? Well, finally, so Jacob is remembering God's promise. Jacob is passing on the promise of God. And then here in these last two verses, Jacob is, as he has been in this chapter, looking toward Canaan. Look at me at verses 21 and 22. It says, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So Jacob tells Joseph, he's about to die, but he says, but God will be with you and God will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Jacob has heard this before. He has heard a similar word before. Back in Genesis 46, in verses one to four, as they're making their way to Egypt, listen to what happens. Starting in verse one, it says, so Israel, it's Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Jacob knows that the Lord has been with him all along the way. He knows that God is faithful. He is banking on the promises that God has given him. He is sure of them. And so he can look at his son now, and he can say, I'm going to die. I'm going to die, but God's going to be with you. God's going to be with you, and God will bring you again to the land of your fathers. That is a promise that the people of Israel needed to cling to. This doesn't happen for a long time, um, at, at least in the case of the nation of Israel coming to Egypt. It doesn't happen for a, a, a long while. Um, Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16 tell us this. There the Lord is speaking to Abraham then is known as Abram, and he says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." God was going to show his um, faithfulness to his people. He would bring them back to the land. But God has other purposes in mind. Genesis 15 says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He's waiting to bring them back into the land of Canaan. And so in the meantime, his people have these rich promises that they will get there. And the call is, trust the Lord. He's gonna bring you to Canaan. He will be with you. What a, a model of faith on Jacob's part. 
I mean, even think about it here just in the context of this chapter. He blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, saying that they'll both be great and ensuring Joseph that God will bring them back to the land of his fathers, to the land of Canaan, the land that God gave them as an everlasting possession. So he is passing on a blessing that includes the possession of a land. Not only do they not currently possess, but they're also not even living in. One commentator says it like this. He says, the recognition of Ephraim and Manasseh along with Reuben and Simeon would alter the portioning of the land of promise. They both would have a share in the promised land. Of course, the granting of the double portion of them was done in full confidence that they would have something to inherit. That is, that the tribes would return to the land of promise. This expectation is not unlike Jeremiah's purchase of the field at the time of the captivity. He was convinced that they were coming back. Jacob was convinced that they were coming back. He is in many ways a model of faith in this chapter. And so in verse 22, he even gives to Joseph a piece of property that he owns in Canaan. Now, it's not entirely clear what that property is, is referring to. It could simply be a mountain slope that he required in an incident that's not recorded in the Bible. But it could also refer to Shechem, that's the city that Jacob's sons conquered in Genesis 34 uh, when they retaliate for the rape of their sister Dinah. Um, the, the, word, the word slope in Hebrew is Shechem. So it's possible that while Jacob doesn't agree with his son's actions in taking that uh, piece of land, he nevertheless assumes ownership of the property and that's what he's referring to. But at any rate, the people of God don't possess Canaan yet. They, they don't even live there. They do already own a couple of small portions of the land, though. God is slowly but surely fulfilling his promises to his people. The same is true for us. We are, if we are in Christ, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to to the promise. So we have been included in the number. We are offspring. Jesus, by grace, has saved us. But we're not home yet. Egypt wasn't the Israelites' home. The United States, this world, is not our forever home. Our forever home is in the new heavens and the new earth with our Savior, when we will dwell with him, he will dwell with us, we will be his people. That's something that we can remember when the day of our death approaches. Like I, I love how um, it's, a, it's a song, it's, it's by a sojourn music, it's called Waters of Forgiveness. I love how the song fleshes that out. It says, when death's sure hand upon me rests, and life's ambitions and joy have passed. Behold, the son of righteousness, kept strong to the end by my Savior's pledge. Hear the waters of forgiveness. Sinner, drink and be refreshed. On our maker, all of our sins were laid. By his wounds, our debts were paid. Come, sinner, find new life. Come, sinner, be alive. We will be brought home. God is, is leading us there. His promises are sure. 
We will dwell with him forever as his people, but we aren't there yet. And so here in Jacob's finest hours, he is modeling for us in many ways faith. We can learn from him. We can also look to our Savior in whom all of God's promises find their yes and amen. Let's pray. You know, sorry, before I pray, um, yeah, I, 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 sh- I should also, I also want to give an encouragement. If you are trusting Jesus, your Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, if you are not trusting Jesus, that promise is for you. Like, that promise is something you need to hear. You can get in on it. So if that's you this morning, Look and see God's faithfulness to his people. Look and see how these promises are realized in Jesus. Look and see what the Lord through Christ is offering you. You can experience forgiveness, salvation, peace, have the assurance of a forever home with God and all of his people for all of eternity. You can be counted as an offspring, as an heir of promise. God will do that for you today. Do you have any questions? I would be more than happy to talk to you after the service is over. All right, let's pray. Father, we do praise you for your word. We praise you for your promises that they are sure. Lord, thank you for this passage, how Jacob models for us faith. Lord, I pray that you would help us too to live exemplary lives of faith. And Lord, help us to do so not looking ultimately to Jacob, but ultimately to Jesus. Um, Jesus, in whom all your promises find their yes and amen. He is our Savior and our Redeemer. Um, He has brought uh, your promises about and is making them so even now. And so, Lord, we praise you for Christ, and um, we pray all this in his name. Amen.